From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. We have to take the time to look at each person and uh, just add mercy. Like, this country is such a merciless place. It's unbelievable to me how we expect peace and harmony and justice and, you know, liberty, you know, for certain people, but then others don't get the same respect. That's Representative Cori Bush. She's a Democratic congresswoman representing Missouri's first district, which encompasses St. Louis. Her path to D.C. was one of activism. She helped organize the Black Lives Matter protests in Ferguson following the police shooting of Michael Brown in 2014. Before entering politics, Bush was a registered nurse and a pastor. In 2020, she unseated a 10-term incumbent in the Democratic primary. In Congress, she's quickly become a prominent progressive voice. She received national attention when she slept on the Capitol steps to fight for an extension of the eviction moratorium. It's an issue that's personal for Bush. Years earlier, after being evicted from her home as a young mother, she spent months living out of a Ford Explorer. We talk about her unique path to Congress and how it's informed her approach to politics. We also have a candid conversation about policing in America. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. Before we get to your questions, I want to flag for folks that a new edition of Office Hours is out. It explores law enforcement's use of rap lyrics and videos in criminal proceedings. Tamara Sepper speaks with Andrea Dennis, author of Rap on Trial, and Alex Spiro, who is Jay-Z's attorney. Check it out at cafe.com slash office dash hours. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Tom, who writes, Dear Preet, in regard to attorney John Eastman withholding emails from the January 6th commission on the grounds of attorney-client privilege, doesn't the privilege belong to the alleged client and not to the attorney? I haven't read anything about Trump actually asserting the privilege. Please explain how this works. Thanks. So this is the ongoing controversy and litigation with the committee between members of the committee and one of Trump's former lawyers who was actually a legitimate lawyer, perhaps provided some attorney-client privileged advice and information, and they're seeking various bits of correspondence from John Eastman. You're absolutely right that the privilege belongs to the client, and the client can waive it. But in this case, even if it's true that we don't know publicly that Trump has asserted attorney-client privilege over the John Eastman communications, he certainly hasn't waived it. And we know from other comments uh, by Trump himself, his lawyers, and by other submissions they made in court, that Trump and company feel that they have very, very broad ability to restrict disclosure of communications. They have a broad definition of what falls within not just attorney-client privilege, but also executive privilege and deliberative process privilege. The general rule is that a lawyer cannot disclose information about his representation of a client without the express informed consent of that client. So, you know, generally the Trump believes he has broad ability to protect information based on that privilege. And he has probably communicated that directly to John Eastman, which is why he has taken the position that he has taken. And in the absence of a waiver, he really has no choice. But as we have talked about before on this show and on Cafe Insider, there are various theories by which 
the committee is seeking to pierce the attorney-client privilege. One of them is much of the advice given was political advice, not legal advice. And also, and more, I think, disturbingly for Trump, they have taken the view that there is evidence that John Eastman and Donald Trump and others may have conspired to violate criminal statutes, which would allow them to get the documents pursuant to the crime fraud exception, which says, just because you're a lawyer, you and your client can't commit crimes and then shield the evidence of your crimes from investigators. So we'll see how that plays out. This question comes in an email from Mary, who writes, do you think Biden and A.G. Garland have spoken privately and perhaps Biden doesn't want Trump charged because he doesn't want to have to pardon him? Prosecuting an ex-president could set a bad precedent and would be quite detrimental to the functioning of our country if it became a regular occurrence. Looking forward to hearing your opinion on this. So thanks for the question, Mary. I really think that that's unlikely, verging on the impossible. Biden has made it very, very clear that in word and deed, he intends to leave the Justice Department alone and not put a thumb on the scale like a certain former president might have with respect to prosecuting or not prosecuting particular people. I think a private conversation like that is not in Biden's style, at least based on his public rhetoric, and also is not in Merrick Garland's style. I don't think he would want to have such a meeting or receive such information. So, so I don't think they've had that conversation about not prosecuting Trump. And that's true for another reason also. I don't think it's the case that Biden is worried about having to pardon Trump. I think he said publicly during the campaign and perhaps afterwards that he doesn't foresee a circumstance in which he would pardon Donald Trump. And by the way, I think that's very wise and makes a lot of sense, notwithstanding the issue that you raise about divisiveness in the country and the detrimental functioning of our country and democracy if there was a prosecution of a former president or a pardon of that president. The example people point to is Richard Nixon, but I think it's very different. Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon after Nixon voluntarily left office, stopped being a politician, didn't threaten to come back to politics, expressed remorse and contrition. That is a far cry from what Donald Trump has done. So I don't think there's a pardon in the offing. I don't think they've had a conversation, but it still remains to be seen what Merrick Garland and the Justice Department do with respect to Donald Trump. This question comes in an email from James, who's asked a very sort of provocative question. He asks, who is the one living person who you would most want to trade places with? And that's interesting. And I thought about that. And I thought about people who are very famous, or very talented, and have done interesting things with their lives, different from what I have done. But my answer to you, and it's, it's an honest answer, is no one. I want to trade places with. I love my life. I love my family. I love my friends. I love the career I've had. It's a career that went better than any I could possibly have imagined when I was a younger person. You know, are there skills and talents I sometimes wish I had? Yeah. Do I wish I could dunk a basketball? Sure. Do I wish I could play credibly in a rock and roll band? Yes. So there's, there's things like that. But overall, given the life I have and the relationships I have and what I get to do, I wouldn't trade places with anyone in the world. And that includes the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail and they then pass those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hey folks, Preet here. I have a very exciting announcement. On Thursday evening, March 31st, we're bringing Stay Tuned to New York City's Town Hall, 
for our first in-person show since before the pandemic. Yes, I said in person. And I'll be joined by two very special guests, Ben Stiller, the actor, director, producer, and goodwill ambassador for the UN Refugee Agency, and Gary Kasparov, the chess grandmaster and one of the most insightful voices on Russia and Ukraine today. As always, I'll answer audience questions and reflect on the latest news making the headlines. You really don't want to miss it. Join me, Ben, Gary, and your fellow fans by heading to cafe.com slash events to get your tickets. That's cafe.com slash events. I really hope to see you there. When Representative Cori Bush won her congressional seat in 2020, she made history. She unseated a 10-term incumbent and became the first Black congresswoman elected from the state of Missouri. Representative Cori Bush, thank you so much for making the time. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So can we clear up something right off the bat? Okay. Cori Bush, I take it you have no relation to George W. Bush or his pops. <laughs> Am I right? I, I don't believe I do. And I, let me just say that name has given me grief for such a long time. Did you get some Republican votes because uh, low information voters on the Republican <laughs> side thought <laughs> thought that you were a Bush? No, I think I, what happened was- or I hurt got, you. It hurt me. People were saying, I'll never vote for a Bush. And so that's why I didn't. <laughs> and then when they saw my photo, they were like, oh. <laughs> You know, it's so funny. It makes me think of the Republican conservative senator from the South, John Kennedy, very different John Kennedy from the, from the one that was in the Senate in the 50s and then became president. But have you, you're sufficiently famous in your district now that everyone knows what kind of Bush you are? Yes, people know what kind of Bush I am now. I made a point to to get the the face out with the name. Right. So, so let me ask that question. What, what kind of Bush are you? You know, I guess the third time's the charm on this, but... Um, <laughs> You know, I'm the, you know, I'm the bush that I'm my, I'm the bush that is um, from my dad's tree. My dad was someone who was very much about the people, boots to the ground, um, each one reach one, and he's still that person today. My dad out runs me. My dad out canvasses me. He can knock doors like no one I have ever met. <laughs> is it something in the knock or in the the frequency? the frequency and then how many doors he can get to and talk to people and have very like in-depth conversations, just the amount of time. He's absolutely amazing. So I've learned so much from my dad. Did he encourage you to go into politics? Absolutely not. My dad was the opposite. He was the one who felt like, I don't want you to be the sacrificial lamb. You know, I don't want you to have to go through things that I went through, you know, just trying to help people. And you have to deal with a lot of corruption and greed. So, no, he didn't encourage me at all. As a matter of fact, when I turned 18, around 18, I told my dad I would never go into politics just because I watched him give so much of himself. And I just saw um, him hurt a lot. And uh, so, no, he was like, yay, you're going to be a nurse. And, you know, like that was, you know, that's what he saw for me. So we've established already minutes into the interview that you're a flip-flopper. <laughs> <laughs> you said you were never running for office and here you are. Yes, I am here. Yes. From your congressional, which office building are you in again? I'm at Cannon. In the Cannon office building, going back on your promise to your dad at 18. Yes, I, I went all the way back. I went way back because I not only ran for office, but I'm seated in Congress now. You are indeed. Congratulations <laughs> on that. So you've had so many varied experiences, more interesting than than I think anybody that I can think of that, that I've interviewed. You were at various times a nurse, a pastor, and a teacher and other things too. Which of those, Which of those vocations is the best preparation for Congress? Um, they all have a purpose. I think that it was kind of, all kind of equal, you know, because being the pastor, I was able to counsel people and talk to them, hear about the deep things that they might might not tell others and be able to give them advice on how to help, you know, be whole. And then also help them with resources to be able to get help. As the nurse, I was working directly with people um, on the medical issues, but also on just wraparound services, how to help their home lives. And um, and I, but I got to see so many people die um, due to lack of health care. Uh, and then um, as the pre-kindergarten teacher and the worker in the child care center, I was able to 
help teach children and I saw what happens when we when we provide a safe place and we provide nourishment uh, and uh, how those children what how they end up growing and a lot of those students came back to me later you know just to tell me oh you know I'm this now or this is what I did I remember when you taught me this but I would say mostly it was my activism in Ferguson that um, really pushed and, and helped me to become who I am today where Michael Brown was killed Absolutely, when Michael Brown was killed. Yes. Did you have former students work on your campaigns? I had one uh, who worked on my on one of my campaigns for a little while. Um, he was uh, he had just turned eighteen, and I couldn't believe it. I'm like, my, <laughs> you you were four the last time yeah. I saw you, and now you're eighteen. Um, yeah, and he went into uh, pol- his major uh, in college was political science. So the other thing that obviously is important in your background and causes you to understand adversity more than almost anyone else in Congress is that you dealt with poverty, you dealt with eviction personally. Yes. And you, you've you now famously lived in your car. Yes. With your family in a Ford Explorer. And it's hard to get your head around that. Can you just describe what that was like, what the logistics were and how you felt about it? Yeah, Um. so never set out to live in the car, didn't really think that it could ever happen. And it just kind of happened one day. It was like, you know, we have to go. We had a vehicle. So, you know, we'll stay the night in the vehicle and figure out where we'll go tomorrow. And um, tomorrow turned into the next day. That was the next day. And it was just a matter of every day trying to figure out where, if, if we could go in and sleep in someone's home, um, there were quite a few nights where we were able to, but, you know, it was come in late at night and then be out by six or seven in the morning kind of thing. So I would take that opportunity to stay up and like try to iron as many, you know, outfits as I could for work, you know, try to get the kids cleaned up as best I could. So it was just that. It was hard. It was really hard because you had to, we had to keep moving the vehicle around um, the city of St. Louis because we didn't want the police to stop us. You know, if a car is parked in front of someone's home, you know, then they're wondering, like, who is this? Especially when it's a family sleeping in When it. it's a family, right. And so we would move. We would sit there until we felt, you know, like maybe people were looking or people you could see people looking out the windows or whatever. So we would move. Um, so that was a constant thing. So we would have, you couldn't really sleep. Then it was cold. You know, even if it was warm during the day, it was cold at night. Um, you, we, we would have to turn the car on and off, trying not to waste g- gas, but then also trying to stay warm, you know, trying not to have carbon carbon monoxide poisoning, you know, it was just a lot, you know, and the children were babies. Uh, I will never forget what that was like and um, just that feeling of being unsafe. But I remember also feeling like we cannot go into a shelter because we will take we will take space from someone who doesn't at least have a vehicle. Did you have a debate about that with your husband or you both agreed not to go to a shelter? No, there was no debate at all. We both agreed. When you were going through this period of time, living in your car on some days, did you feel sort of um, resigned? Did you feel resolved to get yourself out of that situation? Like, what, what were your emotions day to day? It was just survive today. It was, I, you know, it was just what is today? What does today bring? And then you... You live long enough for the lights to come on outside again, you know? And, okay, so now I have to deal with whatever today brings, you know? Um, And that literally was how we got through. It wasn't thinking about next week or the week after. It was like right now, today, in this moment, what do we need to do? During that time, though, I was still working a full-time job. And so I— so. What was your job then? I was working in the childcare center. So the, you know, still making just a little over minimum wage, but I had been there for years. So I think at this point I might've been making $9 an hour or something. And so I just, we just saved up, I saved up my checks, but that was how we got through. You know, one thing that was difficult was, you know, you couldn't sit in the car. Like we could go to a food pantry to get food, but where are we putting the food? And then how are we keeping it? And then how are we going to cook the food, you know, from a car? Uh, you know, so everything was mostly, it was a lot of like, if you if we're eating, we're buying out food or we, or we had food that was just something that we didn't have to, you know, that could, that had a shelf life. Um, you know, there wasn't a can opener, you know, unless we got, you know, you know, picked up the little handy one. Um, so it was just, so it was just a lot of that. 
But I will say that I, there was some joy in it. The joy in it was that my children were still safe, you know, knowing that the police didn't take my kids from me today, you know, um, that I could turn around and look in the back seat, look at the, the, the back area of the vehicle and my children were, were there sleeping. They didn't know. My kids, they were so small. They didn't know, you know, the the trauma that we were living through and what the day-to-day life was like. Um, do you tell? Have you told them about it in detail and how do they think about it now that they're older? Not in detail. I actually know because I spent so much time even after we first moved into a hotel, like one of those extended stay hotels is, is how we got out of the car. And then we finally moved into a home. But since then, you know, I got a divorce. And and it, so it was just still a lot of survival. So I never really went back and just talked to them about like what those days were like. They know what happened. We talked about that, but I never really just walked through it because we dealt with so many other issues, you know, as time went on. Other than maybe a few fellow members of Congress who have spent nights in their yacht, is there is there anyone of your colleagues that you're aware of Slept in a car? No. You haven't taken a survey, I guess, but I think we would know about it. <laughs> yeah, no one has said so. That would be in the bio, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you think that people in Congress and otherwise who have always been privileged and always had money and always had means and always had a roof over their head, are there people like that who can truly empathize and understand the plight of people who have gone through adversity or not? If they choose to. You can dig deep and dig into the work, trying to understand, trying to learn. You absolutely can, but it's a matter of choice. You know, if someone who who chooses to go spend time at the a shelter where our unhoused community members, um, where they're living, that spends real time, not just a photo op, but goes and does that work. They can learn that. They can get to the point to where they have this understanding. It may not be from the stand- the standpoint of someone who's lived it, but they. But if they spend the time, if they dedicate themselves to that work, if they avail themselves and open up to listening to hear Absolutely. They can advocate in a major way. Um, And that's what we need. We need people who are in rooms that I cannot get into. We need people who have networks that are full of people that I will never meet. That's what we need, because those are the folks that can help um, help push other policymakers. They they are the ones that can help open doors uh, for some of these organizations that need the help. So I want to talk about your entry into politics after saying that you didn't want to do it and your father discouraged you. Yeah. It was an uphill battle. You didn't run for an open seat. No, no. You ran in a primary more than once. Yes. Against an incumbent, well-known member of a political family, a black congressman named Lacey Clay. How uphill a battle was that? Oh, it was... Truly uphill. Um, both times that I ran against him, um, the first you ran uphill one, both ways. As they, as they I'm say. trying to tell you, it was <laughs> you know because people, you know, I would hear so much like, why would a Democrat challenge another Democrat? Why um, you are you as a black woman challenging a black man? Why um, you don't have any political experience? You don't have any electoral experience. What is your degree in? What's your education um, background? All of those things. Do you realize that um, a black woman, you know, in Missouri running for a seat like this, like that it just won't happen? You know, I heard so many things. People People challenged my background as a nurse. You're not a you're not an attorney. You can't go to Congress. You're a nurse. Like I heard so it was just so many things. Do they know? know about the dentists? <laughs> Look, the dentist <laughs> or the comedian, you know, at the time, you know? Yeah. But none of those things mattered because you're still talking about someone who was from the from a movement that that affected the entire world and that people still didn't quite understand this movement that I was a part of and still am still a part of to work to save Black lives. So that I think that all of that played a part because it was just like people treated me like at first, like I was not good enough. Like, you know, I was in the way, like I was just making noise, like I was not serious. Were those white people and Black people, were they young people and old people like was there a difference in how people responded to you based on who they were? Uh, it, uh, n- not, you know, it was just kind of like a mixed bag, really. It was, 
you know, it just depended. But some of it was more establishment. It was, I would say that was probably more of the thread. It was people who were, would be considered mostly establishment Democrats who who felt that way. Um, I didn't have as much of a problem with the Republicans in my district. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I didn't have much of a problem with them. A lot of them were like, hey, we'll support you. We might not love your policies, you know, but we think that you're a cool person. So um, they they gave their support. Well, you're a Bush after all. Now I'm a Bush. <laughs> we got to do that. Be, I got to do that ancestry. No, but. Um, <laughs> can't be all bad. But um, so you you ran the first time against Lacey Clay and you lost. What'd you, what did you lose by? Yes. Um, so that was my second run. I ran against Lacey Clay. First run, I ran for U.S. Senate, actually. Right, right, my right. second run, um, I ran for um, against Congressman Clay. And um, 20 points, you know, we were a 20-point difference. Um, so, so that's quite a bit. And you had yes. all these people saying these things to you. But what did you do? You ran again. Yes, I ran what again. Was, what was your thought process and your sort of disposition in deciding to run again? So it was a lot. So after my very first race, a few weeks later, I was violently sexually assaulted. And I couldn't, you know, it it knocked me off my square. Like, I couldn't work. I couldn't eat. I couldn't, I just, I couldn't think, you know. It was just a very tough time. I, and after a few months, when people came to me and asked me to run for that seat against Congressman Clay for the first time, you know, I was thinking, hey, I'm I'm not back to work yet. I'm still in therapy. Like I can't do this. But when I thought about, you know, again, my son being the next being the next hashtag of folks who lost their lives to police violence, or my daughter, or someone else, I knew I couldn't I couldn't let that go. When I thought about because that was the mission the first time when I ran, and so I thought about that, and I thought about how often I went to court to try to get some type of justice or accountability after that very violent rape. Thought about how long my rape kit sat on the shelf and I realized that I needed to make this run. Um, and so because I didn't win, where did the mission go? It was a mission, you know, because I didn't win, I did not meet the goal, which meant I did not fix um, what I said that I wanted to fix in our world. Um, so I ran again and um, and that was it. And so I just, but we had a lot more support the second time because people knew that I was serious. They knew that, you know, I was speaking about Medicare for all, things like Medicare for all. And they were saying, oh, you know, Medicare for all, that's, you know, that's like a unicorn. You know, that's not, that's a fantasy. That's something that that we don't need and could never happen. Oh, you know, you keep saying Black Lives Matter and you keep doing all of this work on the ground as an activist, you know, but no, but it's not, you know, it's not really going to go anywhere. Um, but then what we saw when COVID hit, so much changed when COVID hit. People were like, "Oh, maybe we shouldn't have healthcare connected to job status." And then, you know, George Floyd was murdered, and and Breonna Taylor, and so many others. And we were in the streets again, fighting for Black lives and fighting for accountability. And then people said, "Oh, well, we see that you these were things that you were talking about for so long, and now we see why." So I was going to ask you if you thought that was the reason for the successful run after the failed run, because you changed your methods a little bit, or you changed the way you talked about things or you learned from your dad and knocked on more doors or was it that the message that you were emitting and conveying becomes so much more relevant because of what was happening in the world. And it sounds like it's a bit of both. Yes, yes. The message was more relevant. And then also so many people just felt like we have seen you say and do the same things for years. And, and you know, we believe that it's time for this type of change. I want to talk about methods you know, we think of members of Congress as, you know, they speak a lot on the floor and in other forums like like podcasts now from time to time, but also, uh, and, they, and they vote, but sometimes there's a role for activism. And that I think is a view that you have. And again, famously, you, you engaged in, I guess you would call it a sleep in on the Capitol steps in connection with a movement to extend the eviction ban during COVID. Can you describe what that was like and why you thought that was important? Oh, it was difficult. You know, before the moment that I decided to stay out and um, sleep in on those steps, I didn't have the thought to do it, you know. But I, being out there, I felt like a lot of those feelings flooded back, you know, um, even though we there were a, there were people around, um, it just really felt, I felt unsafe again. You're open to all the elements. You have to deal with whatever comes. There's no place for you to go. And um, it rained while we were out there. So 
you know, no matter how many blankets you have, if it rains, the the, blank, the blankets are wet. You can't cover yourself up and get warm. No matter how warm you, you know, no matter what you do, you can't get warm um, and you can't get dry. So it was from from really, really hot um, weather to cold to rainy. And I just remember at one point just feeling delirious. Like I couldn't, because I hadn't slept, I hadn't eaten much. Um, I was tired and I just... Like, I couldn't think. I was getting confused. And I just remembered all of the people. And I kept pushing because I said, I know I'm only going through this for a few days, possibly. But what about those that would have to go through this and do go through this every single day? How dare I, you know, give up because I'm tired? Yeah, well, you you went through it yourself after having been evicted. So obviously, there's a line and an arc from your experience to your experience as a member of Congress. Yes, what do you think is the biggest problem in the country? <laughs> That's a there's a lot to choose from. Yeah. Is it the fragility of our democracy? Is it racial inequality? Is it income inequality? Is it policing? Is it the war in Ukraine and how that might affect the world? What do you rank these things in your head as a member of Congress? I don't rank them. Um when I think about my the reason why I'm here, which is to stand up and speak up for the people of St. Louis um, in Missouri's first district, I think about though that's always my first priority is what are the issues of our community and what do they see as their biggest issues? Um, So I always go back to that. And I feel like so much of what we have to endure, um, it's going, it starts with white supremacy automatically. It starts with white supremacy. So any, everything I feel is connected to that. So whether we're talking about economic inequality. We talk about environmental injustice from um, police violence to um, the fact that our unhoused community members still sleeping are still sleeping on the ground. Everything that we deal with, the, the disparities in healthcare, it all goes back to there is this system that allows um, Black people and other marginalized groups to continue to have to fight for their basic needs, for their civil rights in this country. And um, and we just get to feel the just we we just get the just all of it. We get to walk through every single day. And when, when I look at what's happening in Ukraine, you know, my work is to save lives and uh, and as I look at what the community members in St. Louis need, that's the first thing is saving lives. So, yes, we want to save lives in Ukraine. We want to save lives in every other place in the, around the world. We want to save lives, Palestinian lives. We want to save uh, Cameroonian lives. We want to save Haitian lives. We want to, you know, so that's what it's about. Because it's not, there are atrocities happening all over our world. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Representative Cori Bush after this. You mentioned Ukraine, and I should note for listeners that we're recording this. We began recording around 11 a.m. on Wednesday, March 16th, just a little while after you and your colleagues in the Congress heard an address from President Zelensky of Ukraine. This is a terror that Europe has not seen, has not seen for 80 years, and we are asking for a reply, for an answer uh, to this uh, terror from the whole world. And I started to ask you, but I I want to save it for the actual interview. What was that like, hearing from him? Yeah, so sitting in that auditorium, the congressional auditorium, it was sad. It was sad because we listened to President Zelensky give this very impassioned speech. And he is he gave the speech from a bunker somewhere, um, you know, in his country. And, and he spoke about exactly where, well, what city he was in. But, you know, just listening to him talk to us about wanting to save the lives of his of his people, the people of Ukraine. Um, and, you know, we watched the video, um, and part of that video was it show how different areas of of the country look and then how it looked after those the those um missiles hit it we saw so many children crying and um people just just bodies we always have to put humanity first um so i'm always going to go back to what do we need to do to save lives and that's what i was hearing from him how do you think joe biden is doing in handling the ukraine crisis 
Um, I think that this is something that did not start with him. And it's just something that he has to has to endure and have and he has to work through. Um, I think that those sanctions coming out with the sanctions, I am 100 percent for targeted sanctions for, you know, the murderous Putin regime, the Russian oligarchs and, you know, corporate fossil fuel executives that profit off of human suffering. So, um, you know, that absolutely um, we appreciate. You know, I think that he he's done well with that. And I think that right now, looking at what is being asked of him, you know, he's being asked to he's been asked for this no fly zone. And um, so I'm the fact that he is talking with Congress, the fact that he that right now he has not made a decision on that. You know, I can understand. It's a tough job. Do you have a view on on whether the U.S. and our allies should think about setting up a no-fly zone, or is that a recipe for World War III? It's a recipe for World War III. And at this point, we have to be thoughtful and we have to be deliberate to center humanity, not exacerbate harm. We have a responsibility to reduce harm, and that's the standpoint that we have to take. So I want to get to this issue of sanctions. And you said very forthrightly that you support certain kinds of sanctions against Putin himself, against the regime, against the oligarchs. But you very pointedly also said that you don't support broad-based sanctions that hurt average Russians. And I understand that perspective, and it's an empathetic perspective. Can you elaborate on, on why you think that, even in dire circumstances like we have now? Yeah, so because I believe that we have to be thoughtful enough to understand how the decisions that we make, um, how they will affect the people that have to live through them. No one up in an ivory tower, you know, how the regular people of those regular everyday people in those um, in the country have to live, um, what will happen uh, to them. And we can't look back in five years and say, oh, well, you know, maybe we made a mistake. We have to look at how the decisions we're making right now will affect those lives. So for us, we uh, we should be using sanctions to incentivize a ceasefire or a withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukraine. That's how we should be looking at it. Use the same, if we're going to have the sanctions, use them to incentivize actions from Russia so that to, to withdraw. Um, so that's how we should be looking at this because, you know, um, there has to be a clear process for diplomacy and de-escalation. Yeah, but what do you do if, if you got a guy like Putin who is not interested in diplomacy? And how do you respond to the argument that, yeah, I think everybody wants sanctions that will foment some diplomacy and de-escalation, but that the narrow sanctions that you support just won't do enough to alienate Putin from his own people. You know, first it has to, it still has to go back to when we, when we're looking at the sanctions that we're imposing, if we have to go back again and again, you know, with more sanctions, like um, what we heard today with President Zelensky, he said, you know, he's asking for the U.S. to, to sanction daily. You know, if we have to continue to do that, but looking at how those are targeted, you know, then we have to do what we have to do. Our, you know, those broad sanctions, you know, when we look at that, our act, we act to reduce harm. Economic sanctions and conditions towards peace have to, you know, we have to make those um, go together. You marry the two. I want to ask you about NATO. The Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, a couple of weeks ago after the invasion, condemned the invasion, of course, by Putin, but also urged the United States, quote, to withdraw from NATO and to end the imperialist expansionism that set the stage for this conflict, end quote. Do you agree with that? I I haven't looked at that. I don't, I, I can't really respond to that. Do you think the United States should remain in NATO at the moment? We have the responsibility. You know, the U.S. has a responsibility to hold the line where we are at, at this point right now. Okay. Can we talk about criminal justice reform? Okay. That, as you said, was one of the things that catapulted you into your life of activism and becoming a member of Congress. Explain to folks, although it should not take a lot of explanation because it's been at the fore of our news for a very long time, especially recently, explain to folks how you analyze the problem. What is the problem with our criminal justice system in your view? <laughs> That's a big question. Take your time. <laughs> it's a huge question. I mean, it's a, there are a lot of problems, but you know, first, we have to be truthful about 
that there are problems. We have to be truthful that the problems start with white supremacy in this country. And the and it's because it is so ingrained into it, it to me it's in the thread of you know our society so from e- everything from looking at we can't just look at policing you know policing is a big thing that I that I deal with that I work in um, like trying to make sure that there's a justice and uh, accountability in our um, policing system um, but also um, what about our our judges our prosecutors you know what's happening as far as how on the federal level when we're looking at um what do we allow into our communities you know how you know having militarized policing does that make our communities safer you know do we make our communities safer by having so many people imprisoned in this country or is our should our work be to de-escalate and to and to allow people back into their into their communities one thing that we work a lot on is clemency um I wore a shirt um that said 18,000 on it at the uh, state of the union because I to um highlight the issue that there are 18,000 people right now who are waiting for a, a signature from the president to be able to be sent to be, to be able to go back home um to be back with their families and uh we know that uh that people prosper that they do well um after receiving clemency um there are so many issues um with this with this system you know and we can't we can't look at it like oh if there are just a few bad apples here and there i do not <laughs> I do not ascribe to that theory of a few bad apples because we don't, as a nurse, we couldn't have any bad apples um, working. You, do you want to, you know, you want a bad nurse? Does that bad nurse continue to get to take care of patients? Does the bad surgeon continue to get to cut on people? Does the bad pilot continue to keep driving planes? No. So there is no such thing as a bad police officer or a bad prosecutor. The, those are people that should not be in those positions. The standards should be those that are doing the actual job. You mentioned clemency, and and I wonder if you have a theory as to why, maybe it's obvious, a theory as to why presidents generally, and governors too, don't use their power of clemency as often as they might. Is it just just politics and they think that it'll hurt them in an election, or is there some other reason? Yeah, I think that that's, I think that's a big part of it. You know, it'll hurt them in an election, explaining it to their base, you know, the fear that you know, what if I'm wrong and that person goes home and does something else? But I feel like when we sign up, when we volunteer to run for these seats, we know that we have to make tough decisions and we have to we have to think beyond what our base is going to say and do the right thing. We have to think beyond that donor. We have to, you know, those decisions have to be made. We, we have to um, prioritize humanity. And if we look at everything from the standpoint of what if, well, what about every car that's on the street? That car accidents happen every single day. What about every, you know, like there are so many things. What about every time someone purchases uh, purchases a firearm? You know, people are able to do that. Like, you know, so where is the what ifs with those things? You know, so people, we have to, we have to take the time to look at each person and uh, just add mercy. Like this country is such a merciless place. It's unbelievable to me how we expect peace and harmony and justice and, you know, liberty, you know, for certain people, but then others don't get the same respect. Yeah. Look, there's a lot of fear. Some of it justified, some of it not, depending on your perspective and what your experiences have been. But yeah, look, I'm, I'm of the view, notwithstanding what my past, my own past has been, that the clemency of power should be used more uh, and better. I mean, it was used very famously by the former president to help out a, a number of cronies and political allies, and that's that's not what it was intended for. So right. we'll see if, if Joe Biden does more. You know, often it, it, clemency petitions are granted later in the term to avoid the political consequence because it's safer that way, particularly if you're not going to run again, but we'll see. So since we're talking about criminal justice reform and policing, Representative, I have to ask you about this phrase that gets much talked about, much debated, sometimes misunderstood, sometimes deliberately used in a way to provoke, sometimes uh, used in a way that is sophisticated and nuanced. And can you guess the phrase I'm talking about? <laughs> I'll say it. I'll say it. If <laughs> defund the police. I guess yes. my first, my, so you have used that phrase, and you don't make apologies for using that phrase. Am I right? None. Zero. None. Now, there are some people 
who do mean when they say defund the police, that they mean abolition and the zeroing out of police budgets everywhere. And, and some of them will say that's an aspiration. We want to get to a point where we don't, we don't need such police forces. And, you know, who, who doesn't agree with that? You know, I would say when I was a U.S. attorney from time to time, you know, in an ideal world, we don't exist, right? In an ideal world, uh, we do such a good job and society does such a good job of preventing crime that there are no criminals who need to be prosecuted and there are other ways to, to deal with it. Where on the spectrum of defund the police proponents are you? So that's a that's just a, a, a huge question because, you know, there are, when I think about do we need, do we absolutely need in the long run, do we need to have police? Do we need to have this policing system set up the way that it is? No, I think that there is a better way. But can I say that we are where I would love uh, for us to be to be able to make that happen right now? We have there, you know, um, there's a lot of work that has to be done. I think that, you know, when I think about how policing started with the slave patrols and thinking about where we are right now, when we know that we haven't gone far from from how policing started in this country, you know, the fact that this country as intelligent of of a society as we claim to be why we haven't figured out how not to kill black people with impunity in this country at disproportionate rates we haven't figured out how not to racially profile um black people and brown people in this country to the point to where um it's two times two and three times the rate of of white community members in a community that is not even a black community we can't seem to figure that out and so if we feel like the way to fix it is to continue to throw money at it. And we've only seen that money, adding money to it does not fix the problem. Then why not do something different? So um, on, as far as the spectrum of where I am on, whether it's abolition or or um, something else, um, I feel like I'm still working through like what that could look like. But nothing, it is not off the table. Well, it's hard to picture. Well, I guess the thing is, it's it's... It's something that could happen. We just have to change the mindset of this country to think that the way that you that that we are supposed to control people, this this thinking that 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 people are first, especially people who are melanated, that we are first violent or first criminals, you know, um, and feeling like the way to solve problems is with bullets, you know, or you know, some type of harm. Right, but you, you said some months ago. And, and maybe, you know, your view is changing and will continue to change. That's a good thing that we all do. And I don't know in what context this was. I think it was an interview. You said, quote, you call 911. They will still be the same as what it is now. If you have violence happening and you call the police, they will still show up, end quote. Yes, that is the yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. This is, yes, for, because of the, this is speaking about the bill that we have, the People's Response Act. Because one thing that people have said is, oh, no one's going to show up at your home. You know, you call the police, no one's going to show up. You know, um, you'll be in crisis and there will be no one there, um, which is um, 100% wrong. It is what we're talking, even if, even if, let's just say, even if people wanted to make this, like, okay, this is about abolishing the police. If someone need, needs help, you don't think that we would put in place if, 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 police departments were abolished, like if that's where this thing went, you don't think that there would be something in place so that people would have the safety that they need and have the care that they need? Absolutely. Like we're not talking about, that's the one thing that it, it, um, people think that those that are working on these issues are not thoughtful, that are not trying to take care of the communities. Right. Our work is to take care of the communities better than what we have now. So that is not the thing. But even as we're talking about my legislation, you call 911 someone will answer your call. But what we're saying is that there will be, instead of a police officer showing up, if you're calling in about a mental health crisis, we'll have a mental health expert show up to your home. We're saying that this allows the police to not go out on calls that could be handled by someone who's skilled to take care of them so that the police can go out on the calls that they need to go out on. So that that would be those calls where something that is violent that is happening or something like that. That's the difference. Yeah, and that's a subset of calls. But, you know, some people say about this debate, there's a lot of semantics and there's a lot of rhetoric and people don't always know what the other person is is meaning by the, the phrase. So, for example, suppose it's not a mental health 911 call, 
but it's a 911 call says there's an armed man in my house trying to rob my house and someone shows up whether we're in an abolition state of the universe or not you can choose to call that person whatever you want but if that person is showing up armed as a public safety person in response to an, an armed robbery uh you know a burglary attempt that's a police officer whether you call that person something else or not right Regardless of what you call that person, whether we're talking about 10 years or 15, 30 years in the future or or now, if someone needs help, that would be the person to show up. What we're saying is have the person that is adequately and appropriately trained to show up to your issue. That's what we're saying. And right now, we cannot look at regular just policing as it is, as it stands to be, you know, that 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 we know that that person that's going to show up in our situation is the per- the best person for the job. And the reason why I say that is because we have situations where people sh- people call for help and they end up being the one hurt, you know? And so, and it's not a thing where it's like an anomaly that this happens. This happens all the time in this country where people are continuously hurt by police. When we look at the fact that in 2021, there were only 15 days in the whole year, 15, where police did not kill someone. 15 out of 365. So something has to change. And the the fact that people get so up in arms over a slogan, but they don't get up in arms about the death of the murder of black people, the killing of black and brown people and Native American people and our disabled community members and our unhoused community members. People care more about a slogan. It tells you that they are uncomfortable with actually addressing the problem. They care more about looking good and sounding politically correct than they care about actually saving lives. I could care less about what you think about me. Just don't touch my people. You know, There are people who do at least say they care about both. And I'm not talking about Republicans and right-wing folks but assertedly progressive members of the Democratic caucus, is what you're saying about folks not caring about one thing and just want to look good, does that apply to Congressman Clyburn? It applies to anyone who feels that this slogan holds more weight than actually saving lives. Because the thing is this, what we have to look at is, do we do more work to actually save the lives or we do more work complaining about a slogan? You know, and you don't ever have to say the slogan. There is no place where anybody ever has to say the slogan. You never have to say the slogan. If I say it, that's one person. But the rest of the people in this country don't have to say the slogan. They can choose to just do it. How about just reallocate? How about just just re- just just divest? How whatever word you want to use, just do it and never say the slogan. You know who said the slogan and you reacted to it and I want to have you react again for our listeners, Joe Biden in the State of the Union. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. That's Joe Biden. That's that's the president. You know, he made that statement. You know, that's how he that's how he feels. You know, when when he included that, though, in the State of the Union, I just wondered why he didn't take that moment to unify his own party rather than continue to divide us like why he chose to provide Republicans an endorsement instead of members of his own party. You know, I want to see a commitment to racial equity and building an anti-racist society. So I want to hear that direct mention to the issues that mostly that most affect our black communities. And that's not what happened. I only have you for a few more minutes, so I wanted to change gears a little bit and ask you about something interesting that's not getting as much attention given the war in Ukraine and and COVID and other things, but it's of great consequence and I think very important. And I wonder what your reaction is to the fact that, you know, in just a few days, we're going to have a Supreme Court confirmation hearing for the first black woman appointed to that court, Ketanji Brown Jackson. And one of my questions is, you know, how do you feel about that, you know, as a member of Congress, as a black woman, citizen of the United States? But then also, how do you feel about the way that she has been attacked by some folks, and I don't know if you saw this, it's not the biggest thing in the history of the world, but some talk show guy whose name I don't want to mention had the audacity to say about Judge Brown Jackson, like she should reveal her LSAT scores. Right. Did you see that or hear that? I didn't see it, but I heard about it. Does that make you angry? It it reminds me of what I went through. You know, it reminds me of being the only black woman in a room 
running for a seat and people using that. That the, the main thing was what's your education background and and who's taking care of your kids while you're here. And so it just reminds me of that. But that question isn't asked of others. So when I say I am elated that President Biden nominated Judge Katanji Brown Jackson for this SCOTUS seat, I couldn't be more happy, more proud when I see her and I listen to her and I think about her background as a public defender, you know, and working for our most marginalized communities. She chose that. She signed up for that work. And knowing that that will be what helps to inform her work as someone on the Supreme Court, knowing that as a Supreme Court justice, knowing that she cares about, she's someone who cares about civil rights. She's someone who cares about worker protections. You know, this is what we need right now. It's sad that it 233 years of Black, we couldn't get a Black woman a long time. to be nominated. But now we're here and we support her. So for those that are trying to attack her, know that even though there are no Black women in the U.S. Senate, that there are Black women in the U.S. House and we are standing firm behind her. And the Congressional Black Caucus has also made, you know, made it public that they will be doing, you know, that we will be doing whatever we can um, to stand beside her and to help how we can. Representative Cori Bush, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your service and best of luck to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My conversation with Representative Cori Bush continues from members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week talking about journalism. We've been hearing a lot about the dangers and perils that face journalists, particularly those who are on the front of a war as in Ukraine, and we have lost members of the media, intrepid journalists, photojournalists, to the war. They've literally been killed in the line of duty, and we should honor them and we should respect them. And it's in that context I want to talk about a new film that you may not have heard of that celebrates journalists in a different context. The film is called Writing with Fire, and I'm proud to say my friend and former colleague, Anarima Bargava, who used to work at the Justice Department, is the co-executive producer for the film. It comes from directors Rintu Thomas and Sushmit Ghosh. It is the first Hindi-language Indian feature documentary ever nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. And it's already won dozens of other awards, including two at Sundance in 2021. The film follows the amazing journalists behind India's only newspaper run by Dalit women. You may not know what a Dalit is. Dalits in India are considered the lowest caste, so low that they have often been referred to historically as untouchables. They are literally the most discriminated against population in all of India. As one of the women says in the movie, quote, I carry my caste identity like a weight on my back, end quote. I got to watch Writing with Fire at a screening in Manhattan this past Tuesday night, and it did not disappoint. It's story after story about these proud and courageous women who have so much going against them to put out a product, a newspaper that covers things that are going on that are difficult to cover. And I thought to myself as I was watching the film, how hard it was to tell their stories, how hard it was to get sources, how hard it was to be taken seriously with all that cast nonsense in the way, how difficult it was to have an impact. But they did, and they do. And as you see in the film, These journalists, they got roads built, they got crops irrigated, they got electricity delivered. These Dalit women, these so-called untouchables, they exposed illegal mining, they held politicians accountable, they got alleged rapists arrested. Their dreams were to be strong reporters, and those dreams were realized. It's a truly inspiring underdog story. The Washington Post has called it the most inspiring journalism movie maybe ever and an essential portrait of the fight for press freedom. The Post also wrote, Writing with Fire reminds us that there are always people who, despite incredible odds, will choose to do this work. So I offer my congratulations to the entire team who worked on this incredible film 
and to my friend Anarima. If you get the chance to see Writing with Fire, do yourself a favor. Go see it. And good luck at the Oscars. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Representative Corey Bush. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.